Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Before we get into this episode, I want to take a minute to thank Wireframe, one of the sponsors of this episode. Wireframe is a podcast about creativity and design for creative professionals produced by industry leader Adobe. It's for UX designers, illustrators, graphic designers, typographers, artists, and activists, or really anyone interested in design and how creativity impacts the world around us. One of my favorite recent episodes explores our hatred of the font Comic Sans, and This episode takes us into an imaginary font party where we hear from different fonts, including Comic Sans, and it's really hilarious and well done. Kudos to host Koi Vin for this amazing episode. I hope you'll search for Wireframe in your podcast app, and I'll also include a link in my show notes. Many thanks to Wireframe for their support. Hi everyone, I am so excited to share with you my first ever interview on the Lisa Congdon Sessions. That's right, somebody is joining me today. This inaugural interview is with Jen Hewitt, also known as Jennifer Hewitt. Jen is a printmaker, surface designer, author, textile artist, and teacher. She is a lifelong Californian until recently, and she combines her love of loud prints and saturated colors with the textures and light of her surrounding landscapes to create highly tactile, visually layered printed textiles. Another fun fact about Jen, she is my best friend. And so this interview is of particular delight to me to share with you. In this episode, we will talk about her big move across the country recently and what led to it. And we also talk about boundaries. Jen is a magical boundary keeper, in my opinion, and somebody I really look up to in that way. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed creating it. I could gush about Jen, her work, her activism, her aesthetic, her sense of humor, her writing skills, her art skills, her insanely beautiful artistic voice, and her wisdom for eons. But instead, let's just get to this interview. Jen, I can't believe I am finally having you on my podcast. Actually, you're my first human guest. Wait, you've had other guests who have not been human? <laughs> well, that came out a little funny. Maybe have I had milkshake on yet? I should really have milkshake on sometime. It would be a really boring episode. But anyway, yeah, my first guest, definitely my first human guest. And I am so excited to talk to you today because... We have endless things to talk about. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you are not only a working artist and printmaker and surface designer, but you're also my closest friend. So this conversation might be a little bit more intimate than some I might have with some other guests. And I'm really excited to dive into some juicy topics with you today. I'm sure this will be like the first of many episodes that we do together. Just full disclaimer, we originally had a plan 
that we were going to have a conversation about celebrity dogs. Yes. And then we scrapped that. Don't worry, folks. We'll be back with that next time. But Jen just made a huge move in her life. And I really just want to talk about that first and foremost, because you have a pretty large following on social media and people were kind of shocked at your move. And especially considering you're a middle-aged single woman. How dare you move across the country? (laughs) Um, So let's talk a little bit about that. So you moved from San Francisco where you'd lived for how long? Yeah. So I have lived in California, or I had lived in California pretty much my entire life. I lived in Los Angeles for my childhood and then went away to college in the Bay Area and then stayed. And I lived in Northern California almost 30 years. And San Francisco, I've lived there for 25 years. And to be honest, I had been trying to leave San Francisco since I was like 23 and uh, just kind of got settled in there and really had wanted to move again starting around 20, I think 2012, 2013. And things just didn't work out for a variety of reasons. The biggest of which was that I was trying to make it as a working artist. And it was really hard to just pick up and move across the country without a settled career. So yeah, everything kind of came together last year. A variety of forces converged all at the same time to make this move feasible and possible and really the right move for me to take at this, at this point in my life, at this point in my career. So this wasn't like some sort of like pandemic decision that you made because you were bored or had too much time on your hands to think. This is actually something you've been thinking about since you were in your early 20s, and you'd actually wanted to make this particular move to the Hudson Valley for a while. And I know this because we we talk every day, but talk about how you prepared to make this big move, knowing, I mean, we know that it probably should have happened a little earlier if it hadn't been for the pandemic and maybe some other circumstances, but talk about how you prepared for this or how you got yourself ready. So I've wanted to move to this region since 2016, which is the first time I came out to the Hudson Valley for an artist residency and had been trying to move here. But again, things just didn't work out. And then the pandemic hit and I saw that real estate prices were creeping up. And so I thought it wasn't going to be possible. But I had been coming to Hudson specifically probably at least once a year, sometimes twice a year since 2016. And I actually have a lot of friends. I have a nice community here. Also, you know, you lived in San Francisco a long time. You know how hard it is to actually see your friends when you live in the Bay Area? It's (laughs) Um, true. Because of traffic and schedules and parking and nobody really wants to leave their house or leave their neighborhood. So if you don't live in that, like the same neighborhood as your friend, you're probably not going to see them. Whereas being up here... People are just really excited to like drive and see their friend's studio or meet up for a walk. And life, for those of us who are artists here, seems to be a lot less stressful and a lot more community-oriented. So that's an aside. But that was part of the preparation, was just coming here regularly and meeting people and expanding my network here and growing my community here. And then a couple of years ago, my career really started taking off. I had been an HR consultant until the end of 2016. That was my part-time day job while I was trying to make it as an artist. And it's very hard to pick up and leave that kind of a career because there are so many regulations that are specific to the state. So I knew I couldn't move 
if I was still doing HR consulting, I couldn't leave California because I'd have to learn all this new stuff. But I quit that at the end of 2016 and then struggled for a couple of years just to keep things going. But I think it was the end of 2018, early 2019, that my work took off and it became consistent. It became really, really predictable for the most part. So I knew where my income was coming from, you know, six months out. And then when the pandemic hit, I had already worked on a couple of big projects, but I essentially got all of my dream projects last year. So 2020, they all just came rolling in. It started probably in April or May. And then I like I designed another fabric collection. I designed a home collection for anthropology. I had an illustra- big illustration project that the client eventually killed at the very end of the project. And then I had another licensing project, which I think I can talk about like in two months or so. And so I just suddenly was like, oh, I have, I have the money at this point to make the move. I couldn't teach at all last year, and that was another one of the things, was I didn't want to have to start all over somewhere else teaching, that I was really particular about where I taught, <laughs> um, and I didn't want to have to adjust to anything else, and I was burning out on teaching. And so, but I was always worried that teaching like paid my rent every single month, and so I was worried that if I moved and I wasn't teaching, that I wouldn't be able to afford to live, afford my rent. But I figured out during the pandemic that I didn't have to teach, that actually having that time and that space, I was able to work on all different kinds of projects and also just like rest. So I wasn't always working on the weekends. And then real estate got really insane. It got really intense all over the country. It was intense in the Bay Area. And I had realized way back in like 2012 that I would not be able to afford to buy anything in the Bay Area, not as an artist, not as a single artist. And so I knew I wouldn't be able to settle in the Bay Area long term, any longer term that I already had. And I also had seen myself like I was getting older and I didn't want to be paying rent for the rest of my life. And I wanted to have a place that was my own. And so, yeah, you know, I had wanted to buy a place out here in the Hudson Valley for ages. And I saw everything getting way more expensive, like exponentially more expensive beginning in March when the pandemic hit. And then our friends, um, and I say our friends because they're friends of both Lisa and I, they were selling or they wanted to move further out into the countryside. They live here in the Hudson Valley. And they asked me if I would be interested in buying their home. And it would be, you know, it would just be us working with attorneys and, of course, for me alone, agent, to get this all done. It would never go on the open market. It was just a transaction among friends with some legal help. And it was an offer I couldn't refuse. It came at exactly the right time where I could afford to move and I had the work where I could move and I had a place that I could move into. So it was uh, just a convergence of all of the things that needed to happen in order for me to feel comfortable, feel comfortable moving. I love that. And I also love that it's sort of like just the convergence of everything and also the fact that our friends were willing to forego the bidding war that they could have had on their house in order to, you know, sell it to you at a fair price also just shows what love and respect you command from other people because it's not every day you hear these stories. So, I mean, it's amazing that they did that, but it's also says a lot about you. So 
that they wanted you to have their house and wanted to help you make this dream come true. And uh, we all know, like, we could go off on how hard it is to qualify for loans as a self-employed person. Just in case anybody hasn't been through this as a self-employed person or somebody who owns their own company, even if you are a corporation, and both Jen and I are corporations now, it's just, like, ridiculous. And if you're not married, and Jen is also a single woman, it's incredibly hard. And so in a way, it's not that you wouldn't have potentially gotten a place in the Hudson Valley if you had done it on your own, but what a gift to have this opportunity where you didn't have to finagle and you, you know, you still had to qualify for the loan, you know, and turn in all that paperwork, but I'm I'm sure this made it a lot easier. It definitely did. And just not having to deal with a real estate agent that was going to take me to see things that were maybe a little bit out of my price range. That was a relief. That's not me dissing real estate agents. I have friends who are real estate agents. I know that sounds silly, but it was more that I, there was not a lot of pressure in this process, except from my loan agent at the very last minute when things almost fell apart. And again, like things almost fell apart and you know, full disclosure, my family helped me with the down payment. I have no qualms about saying that. So it was half their money, half my money. And then at the very last minute when things almost fell apart, another friend swooped in and made sure I was able to get the loan. Like literally at the 11th hour. Yeah, it takes a, it takes a village. It does. It does. And, you know, I was telling Jen the other day when this happened, she called me in tears and we knew it was going to work out, but wow, how stressful and scary. And I was saying to you, Jen, that when Clay and I bought both the house we live in in Portland now and our second home, even though I make more money than my wife does, the broker decided to only use Clay's income because she has like, she, you know, because she's not Mm self-employed. And, and it's so interesting to me that like we ended up qualifying with her income, but they were, you know, sort of terrified about using mine because, you know, I get, I have all these like 1099s and like income from all these different sources. And I had to explain why, and I know you tried to do this too, Jen, I had to explain why certain times of the year my income would go way up and then sometimes it would go way down. And that's because the nature of what we do is pretty seasonal. Like we make the most money during the holidays because we sell stuff. And that kind of thing was just like mind boggling to me that the system hasn't really advanced with entrepreneurship. At no, all. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's infuriating because I think so many of the dreams of this country are like home ownership and entrepreneurship being your own boss. And those two things don't play really well together. <laughs> you know, I like, it was, it was really hard for me to, at the very last minute to just justify that right? My income this year doesn't look like the average income last year because we haven't done Q4 yet. And, you know, this is when all of us who sell things online or sell things retail make all of our money. And they weren't hearing that. And I thought, well, what is it like for people who make like all of their money at the end of the year who don't have Mm. illustration work and licensing work that takes place throughout the year. And like, I'm really lucky. I got a huge lump sum payment for my fabric collection in July. And if that had come in a month later, I wouldn't have qualified for the mortgage at the very last minute. But yeah, you know, supposedly we're a country of 
entrepreneurs and we're a country of homeowners, but it's really hard to be a, a homeowner. Um, it's really hard to be an entrepreneur. It's really hard to be an entrepreneur and a homeowner at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were swapping a lot of stories about that over the last few months. So now you're there and you basically, Jen lived in an apartment for how many years in San Francisco? I lived in the same rent-controlled apartment for 25 years. Yeah, 25 years. And you also worked out of that space. So, and at various times since we've been friends, which is a while, you've had roommates. And that was, you know, you really have, your career's really taken off in the last few years. So you've been able to have the entire space to yourself. But for a while you were working there, you had a roommate, you know, it was a little chaotic and a dog. Um, (laughs) or two different dogs in the last 10 years. And so you had this opportunity to go somewhere where you did know some people, but, you know, completely different part of the country. Jen grew up in LA, so, you know, has only ever really lived on the West Coast, except for some, you know, you lived in Paris for a while when you were younger. But what's it like waking up every morning now and saying, oh my God, I have a house and I live in a place that I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of. That must feel pretty exciting. It is exciting. Um, I will also say that owning a house for the first time is terrifying. (laughs) I, the dreams are starting to taper off now, but for the first couple of weeks after, I guess it's actually only been two weeks since I closed on the place that we signed the contract. So these first two weeks, I've had anxiety dreams about like things going wrong with the house and someone taking the house away from me. Mm. So it's very strange owning something after not after being a renter. But also there's the sense like right now there are workers working on the exterior of the building and it's going to look so good when it's done. And like I can do whatever I want. I can paint the walls whatever color I want. I also have a lot of control over my environment because before I was living on a busy street upstairs from a horrible personal training studio that blasted its music that I was like <laughs> constantly like arguing with because their music was so horrible and they were so loud and my landlord wouldn't step in and I had holes in my ceiling because of a leak coming from upstairs and I had a mouse problem and it's like Well, now, if there are holes in my ceiling, I can just fix them. And if I have a mouse problem, I just call the exterminator, the pest control person. And I don't live upstairs from a personal training gym. So just that amount, like the anxiety dreams about owning a place are far less stressful than all of the stuff about renting, especially in the last couple of years, just being a tenant in a place that's like slowly crumbling. So that's amazing. And then there's also, you know, it's like, It's summer here. I haven't experienced a summer in San Francisco in years because it's always really foggy and really cold. And when it's hot, we have wildfires, so you can't go outside. And just being here and being able to, like, walk to meet friends and be outside and explore new things on foot, it's been really exciting and really fun. And also there's this community here. Like, I went and had drinks with a friend the other night. She said, oh, I invited someone else to come along. And then we ended up talking. And then now we're friends. You know, this really organic way of meeting people, which was so true of my early 20s and wasn't as true as I got older, is kind of coming back. And it's that's really exciting, too. I love that. When I moved to Portland, I started experiencing the same thing because like Jen, I used to live in San Francisco and we both lived in really, you know, urban parts of San Francisco. And 
you know, even we met and became friends in San Francisco. I actually shortly thereafter moved to Oakland after Jen and I became friends. But when we were first friends, I had a studio there. And but just figuring out like, okay, how am I going to get to your house? Do I take the bus? Do I ride my bike? Do I drive and risk not having a parking space? Mm -hmm. Like you said earlier, it's like everything is kind of stressful and fraught in San Francisco or in urban areas where parking and traffic and getting from point A to point B feels stressful. And when I moved here, it was like, it takes, you know, seven minutes to get everywhere, maybe 12. If you're going across the city, you can park literally anywhere, even if there's an event. I mean, it's very rare that you can't find parking. Mm -hmm. It's also really easy to ride your bike. And I just, it became so much easier to meet people. And the vibe here is so laid back. And I know because I had spent almost a month in the Hudson Valley at the same residency where you originally fell in love with the location. I also just felt super chill and relaxed there. And there's something about that, you know, being outside of a really big city, you know, Portland's a city, but it's not huge. And it just makes building relationships with people so much less stressful and so much easier. And I feel like you can meet people just from like one of my really close friends here, I met in line at a movie theater. Like, when does that ever happen? You know. <laughs> so I I feel you on all of that. That's so exciting. And so part of what that's making me think about is the fact that, Jen, how old are you? 46. Jen is 46. So she's past the sort of like middle age threshold. Right. And you're also a single woman. You've never been married. And I just want to say that part of I love so many things about Jen but one of the things I love about Jen is that she is sort of like unapologetically kind of lives her life in the present moment and you know while I'm sure you would love to fall in love with the right guy you know you're like I'm living my life and I'm gonna make my art and I'm gonna do what makes me happy and brings me joy and I'm gonna follow my dreams and I feel like so many women especially middle-aged women previously married or not, you know, not having kids would never consider moving across the country. And in fact, you got a lot of comments on Instagram, like, wow, like that's such a big deal. And in a way it didn't feel like that big of a deal for you to me. Like, it's almost like you'd been preparing your whole life for this. Like you said, you'd been wanting to do it since you were 23. And it was really your mindset that kind of propelled you to continue to prepare for it that whole time and to accept the fact when, you know, obstacles got in your way that it wasn't going to happen yet, but it was going to happen. And so I'm just kind of curious, like, how do you think you got there to that place? And what advice do you have for other women in particular who might be in a similar situation as you, where they kind of dream about getting up and moving somewhere, doing some new adventure later in life, but they're terrified? What advice do you have for those people? So my dad likes to tell me, he still, because, you know, like he's a dad, he'll tell you the same story over and over again. <laughs> but he likes to say that I was preparing my parents for the fact that I was going to leave them since I was a really little kid. That I would like, I would, I was desperately homesick when I would go to sleepaway camp, but I would still go because it was important to me that I would leave. When I was in high school, I went away for a summer Kids would get a summer job or they would go on vacation, but I went to UC Santa Barbara for summer school one, one summer because I just wanted to like prepare myself to go to college, not academically, just to prepare myself for living away from my parents. And so my dad says, yeah, I was never surprised that you left. Your mom always was. <laughs> um, and so it was surprising to me that I'd lived in one place for so long. 
But also, it's not like my life has happened to me. I don't know how to explain it except to say that I made some very deliberate choices. Yeah, you're not one to sit back and wait for things to happen. Like, I actually made a conscious decision in my, gosh, early to mid-30s. I think it was probably in my mid-30s where a lot of the people I was spending time with at that point in my life, and most of whom I'm no longer friends with, but a lot of the women who were straight were really kind of looking for husbands because they wanted to get married. They wanted to have kids. They saw that their biological clock was ticking. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think that's that's a biological drive that all of us have. And I was like, well, I've been dating like crazy. I dated a lot, in my, especially in my 30s. And I didn't meet a man that I wanted to like have children with, you know, <laughs> let alone spend the rest of my life with. And I decided at that point, like, well, it would be okay with me if I didn't have kids, that this wasn't going to be the focus of the next five years of my life. And it was a really liberating decision because then I was like, okay, well, if I don't have a biological family or biological children right now, what does that mean I can do? And so a lot of the things were like, well, I'm going to take art classes and When I got laid off in 2008, you know, I had this opportunity to just, because nobody was hiring, I was like, I'm not going to freak out about not being able to find a job. I have savings, I'm resourceful, I have rent control. I'm going to see if I can start life again as an artist. And those were all choices that I I made, and each choice built on another choice. And when I went back to full-time work, and I hated it, and friends came and said, well, we heard you did HR. Would you be willing to do this for our company? I took them up on that because I was like, why not? When am I going to have this opportunity again? I don't need, for a variety of reasons, I just don't need the stability of a full-time job. And I was able to do that for six years to support me while I was working on becoming a self-supporting artist. Like All of these things just played on each other. And they were most of them were very deliberate choices that didn't feel like they were a big deal when they happened. Like it didn't feel like a big deal that I was just going to date whoever and just have fun and not worry about getting married and not worry about having children. And then it was like, well, it's also, I'm, I'm not, it didn't feel super momentous to leave my horrible full-time job of five months to become an HR consultant. Like none of these felt really huge in the moment. And now I look back at it and I'm like, oh yeah, it was all these, all these steps I took that allowed me to, to do the work I'm doing now. And so I think, you know, it may look to outsiders that I've done this huge move across the country, which, yeah, it's kind of a huge move. I moved across the country. I bought a house. I packed up my home of 25 years. But also it just didn't feel like that big of a change because all of the changes and all the decisions I've been making my li- in my life up to this point just led to it. And so I think when people are faced with this idea of like wanting to make a big change, maybe you don't make the big change. Maybe you make a small change and that small change leads to another small change. And at the end of the, you know, at the end of your life, you've made a series of small changes that have led to really big changes from maybe where you started from. Yeah. It's like uh, a lot of people call that, I think this term is kind of overused and cheesy, but a lot of people call that like your North star, right? Like not necessarily like, one big goal, but like thinking about ultimately the life you want to live. Right. And I remember when I was younger, I, when I started thinking about what is it that I want to, how do I picture my life, you know, in 10 years, what, where do I want to go? It's like, if you think about getting to that life tomorrow, 
you're in trouble. It is overwhelming. But if you make these kind of small, what I, what I hear you saying is if you make these sort of small, intentional, incremental decisions that help you on your path to your North Star, then eventually you'll get there or you'll get somewhere else because you're your opinions or feelings or circumstances will change and something might surprise you along the way. And I think that's, I don't know. I mean, I think that's such a great piece of advice because so many times people get, or people I talk to get completely overwhelmed by the fact that what they want isn't going to happen to them immediately. And what I heard that you did is you kind of surrendered. You're like, well, maybe I should not hold on so tightly about this kind of traditional idea of how my life is supposed to be. Maybe I should open myself up to something different. And then you got excited about that thing. And then you made some choices, not all of which were making art every day, which helped get you there. And you never made yourself feel bad about that. And, and I love that. It's such a great, such a great story. Well, I think, you know, as artists and as fairly successful artists, you and I get asked a lot of time about, like, what will we recommend for people who want to go on this path and what steps should they take? And I I think because we have been taught, we've been socialized from an early age to, like, have these big goals and break them down into small goals. And if you want to be an accountant, you go to college and you study accounting and then you become, you know, like, it's art isn't accounting. There isn't a really easy path for this. There isn't an easy way to do the work that we're doing except to just do it. And it's hard to explain that to folks who have had traditional careers or traditional paths that like, you can't just take five steps today and that will get you that much closer to where you want to be in a year. And where you think you want to be in a year is probably not feasible if you don't have any experience, like you don't actually know what's feasible. And like there are these projects that I've always wanted to do that many of which I was able to do last year and that are launching this year. And people ask me like, well, how did, how did anthropology find you? How did Ruby star society find you? How did you get to design this fabric line? And I'm like, I don't know, (laughs) you know, to be honest, I have been doing this since 2008 and I've been doing it really seriously since, yeah, I guess since 2008, but full time since 2000, end of 2016. And I've just consistently put out work and done the projects I've wanted to do for myself, even if nobody's paying me, you know, because this is work I want to do. Now, I don't do them for other people. I don't do them for free for clients. I do them because it's just a skill I want to learn or I have this itch I want to scratch. And it can be daunting, I think, if you're really task and goal oriented to realize that, well, you know, like you can do all the trade shows you want and maybe you won't get that contract that you wanted to do. You can put your work out there on your portfolio, on social media, and maybe you won't get the project you want. There's no sure bets in this. So if I'm going to do this work, then I at least want to have fun while I'm doing it. And I want it to be gratifying for a reason other than I'm getting dream projects, right? Like I'd like to make dream projects. Nobody asked me to make scarves. I just went ahead and made them and they've been fairly successful for me. Nobody asked me to teach block printing, but that was something I wanted to do, so I did it. And so am I saying that's the path for success for anybody else to make scarves and to teach block printing? No, it probably worked for me at a very specific time for a very specific reason. But I'm, I'm interested in having an interesting, fulfilling life. 
which has, you know, to be honest, like meant probably giving up some stability. Um, it's meant that I couldn't buy a house until I was 46. I will be 76 by the time I pay off this house. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So, yeah. Yeah. I am so excited to introduce you to my latest sponsor, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is a stock footage company who exists to help you bring all of your stories to life without sacrificing your vision due to time or budget or resources. Every creator who does any kind of video production should have Storyblocks. Storyblocks is changing the face of stock footage with more diverse and inclusive content in their library to help creators continue to tell their unique and authentic stories. Their restock program, and I love this, is their commitment to increase representation in stock media by hiring creators from marginalized communities to create content that is more reflective of the diverse world we live in. They are also committed to access by making their footage affordable offering unlimited downloads, a royalty-free demand-driven library, and enterprise licensing. Focused on speed, diversity, and accessibility, I highly recommend checking them out at storyblocks.com slash Congdon. The link is also in my show notes. Just hearing you talk all about that is just like, so inspiring. I was having a conversation yesterday with a writer who's writing an article about me for Dyeline, which is this, I think it's a packaging design mm-hmm. blog. And they were actually, she was interviewing me about like all of my brand collaborations, of which there have been many in the last two years. And she wanted to know like the history of my brand collaborations. And I was like, well, I actually been at this for Let's see, I started in 2007, you know, 14 years. I've only done brand collaborations in the last few years. And that's because it takes a long time. You know, like I have did other things that got me in this position where big brands are wanting to work with me. But and, you know, of course, there are those folks out there who are like fresh out of school or even self-taught like you and I, Jen, who land a lucky collaboration within you know, a short period of time of launching their career. But for most people, the stuff you're talking about, like all of the work you've been doing and all of the work that I've been doing has taken a long time and you just have to be patient. And like you said, you might as well be patient making the stuff you want to make. And in fact, neither of us would have had all of the collaborations that we've had had we not made all of that personal work and made the work that we wanted to make. You can't um, make work in a vacuum. You have to figure out what what drives you and what inspires you and what feeds you, even if it's not the most popular thing out there right now. And, you know, your passion about what you do and your design aesthetic and including what you don't want to do is, I think, part of what inspires me about you. And so one of the other things I wanted to talk a little bit about is, is your kind of, I don't know if like the word boundaries is the right word, but one of the things I admire about you so much, and I get to witness it in so many parts of your life because we're so close, but you have this ability or you've developed this ability to really understand your limits. And maybe it's because you know, I'm sure part of it is because you're a black woman who, you know, has to 
work really hard at preserving space for self-care, for self-protection, for, you know, for a myriad of reasons. I think part of it is also your personality. You're just very good at sort of figuring out what you need. And sometimes you've made mistakes, right? Like you overextended yourself and you're like, I'm never doing that again. Right. And sure enough, Jen doesn't do that again. I, on the other hand, am a completely different animal than Jen. But what I love about you is this like, I'm not going to overwork myself. I'm not going to take a job for less money than I think I deserve. I'm not going to like, even in the beginning when you were, you know, kind of suffering financially, as we all do in the beginning, you had very kind of, I thought, like, very high ideals for what, you know, what you wanted to hold yourself to in terms of your work and your life. And, and I was curious, well, A, can you talk a little bit more about that? And B, what I'm really curious about is kind of where did where do you think that comes from? Or in addition to the stuff I already mentioned, like, what do you think necessitates it in your life? So boundaries is a great word. I love boundaries. Good. And <laughs> I'm never sure, you know, that word is like so jargony these days, and I'm not sure it resonates with everyone. So let's use it. Yeah. No, I like that word a lot. And I like having boundaries a lot. And I think I've always been a person with boundaries. I think that's partly like you're right. It's just my personality. But even from a young, like from when I was young, I just knew I wasn't, I wasn't trying very hard to be a people pleaser, even though as a, as a girl, I was very socialized to be a people pleaser. Even from a fairly young age, I had a really strong, a really strong sense of boundaries around my personal space, around my emotions. I was an incredibly emotional child and I'm still an emotional adult. And really just very sensitive. And so the boundaries weren't so much a way of like isolating myself from the world, but really being able to say like, stop, don't do this. This is going to upset me. Mm. It took me a long time to get to the point where I could verbalize that. But once I was in my, I think once I was in my 20s, I had gotten much better at saying that. I think also what it really came from was a couple of experiences in my 30s. So the first was that I started therapy in my 30s, early 30s, because I had just, I'd been a perfectionist. I was totally afraid to do it, to to do things wrong and mess up. And I always thought the world would fall apart. And so I really worked through that in therapy. And part of that too was just like not overextending myself, not promising to do things I couldn't do. Because, you know, like I just literally couldn't do them. There was no reason for me to to say I could do something and have my world fall apart when I couldn't deliver. Mm. The other thing that happened was I was working for a company that was going through an acquisition, and I was on the team that was helping to lead the due diligence on, on our side. So a bigger company was going to acquire the company I was working for. And, um, things totally fell apart because of mismanagement by the parent company, mismanagement by the upper management. They had been doing some shady, illegal things that they were later dinged by the Australian government. It was an Australian company for doing. And uh, the acquisition fell through, just completely fell through in 2008, right before Christmas. And I had to lay off the entire team, including myself in the U.S. office. And it was this moment where I was like, I worked really hard on this. It was beyond my control. The results were beyond my control. The male managers 
were kind of blaming me and trying to get me to fix this. And it was like not a problem I had caused. And I was so exhausted by the end of that job that I just thought never again, like never. I will not, if I'm putting myself out there, if I'm putting myself on the line for something, it's going to be for my own work. And I get to pick and choose what situations I will do that for. And I was unemployed for a good long time, almost a year and a half, because the economy was so bad and I couldn't find work. And when I finally went back to work, I worked for this man who was clearly narcissistic and a sales team that would snark about me behind my back. In fact, they did it once while I was on the call, not realizing I was on the call, and I told them off. And then I quit because I was like, again, I'm not putting myself on the line for other people and situations that are beyond my control. So once I started working for myself, that kind of became, you know, my guiding force that I was doing HR consulting for a number of years. And so I had to have really strict boundaries for liability, but also for modeling for a lot of these managers who like had started their own businesses, not because they wanted to start a business and not because they wanted to manage people, but suddenly they were managing folks. And so, you know, I had to show them how to draw the line and also how not to get involved in their employees' lives and what like a proper management relationship looked like. And I definitely made mistakes and I own that. I completely own that. But it was important to me that in order for my clients to be good managers to their employees, I had to draw certain boundaries around myself and not accept certain types of behavior, not be on call all the time because that just wasn't healthy. And yeah, I did that for a number of years. I did that for six years. And when it was time to say goodbye to that, it was time to say goodbye to that. And there were certainly times when I worked like crazy for clients and was stressed and anxious. And I was like, I'm not doing that again. And so I would calibrate, recalibrate every time I had one of those interactions. And I would think, is this something I want to continue doing? If not, then, you know, how do I get myself out of this situation or away from this client? How do I transition out? until I transitioned myself out of it completely so that I could be an artist. And also, I will say that I'm incredibly grateful to that experience being an HR consultant because it was work that paid really well. (laughs) And it allowed me to make choices about the kind of creative work I was doing where I didn't have to take on projects just for the money because I had money coming in from another place. Right. So you, you, just so to be clear to those listening... Jen, for many years, was an HR consultant and uh, and a self-employed artist. Right, um, from 2010 and, to 2016. Yeah, yeah. in fact, both. the very beginning of our friendship, that's sort of all, like, what her whole life was. And so that, yeah, that alone must have forced you to have boundaries. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and it forced me to have boundaries even around my time, which... In those early days, like people would message me on DM saying, hey, I saw you, uh, or message me on LinkedIn, like, hey, I saw you on in the San Francisco Chronicle, or I saw you in Anthology, I saw you in whatever, and I would love to meet up with you and pick your brain about this. And I was like, you know what? I get paid a lot of money <laughs> as a consultant <laughs> to do this work, and I'm totally happy to talk to other artists who are recommended through friends But complete random strangers online wanting me to tell them how to do it was really, that just felt really weird. 
And I did do it twice. I did meet up with people twice. And the interactions were really weird because it was clear that it was not about relationship building. It was really transactional where these people wanted something out of me. And then when they got the information, then they were done. And they just, they were like, okay, well, thanks. It was good talking to you. And then I never heard from them again, which is the exact opposite of community building. And I owe so much to my growth as an artist, both professionally and creatively to the communities I've had and I've helped build and I've been a part of. So after those two people, I was like, forget it. I'm not, I'm just, my time is too precious. And also, I think you recognize it's not your responsibility. It's not my responsibility. And a lot of people think it is. Right. You know, they feel obligated. You know, the thing is, like, I I will be on an, I will be a, a podcast. Pretty much any podcast that asks me, I will happily talk on a podcast. I can talk all day. I used to do recruitment. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> any podcast. I, yeah, within <laughs> reason. But yes, I will, I will gladly sit for an interview. And part of that is because I know that when I sit and I do an hour, an hour and a half for a podcast, that it's going to reach so many people. So even if only 100 people listen to a podcast, that's 100 people that I wouldn't have reached otherwise. And I don't want to sit down and speak with 100 people individually. But it floors me how many people will ask me questions that I've already answered a zillion times before, like, in a podcast interview or in a blog post or in an Instagram post. And it's usually like a really baseline, simple question that can just be found with five minutes of searching. And again, like, I think this comes back to, in many ways, this idea of doing the work that you want to do. Like there are times where I would get so excited about an artist or about an era a body of work that I would go online and I would look for all the information I could find. I would order books. I would go to my bookstore. You know, like I would read blogs. I would listen to podcast interviews to find out more about someone or something about some era. And so I think that that's a really important part of being an artist. And so when someone comes to me and just expects me to give them the information, I'm like, if you're really that interested, then spend a little bit of time and do the research. (laughs) It's it's not, it's not hard to do, and falling down a rabbit hole, following my line of inquiry has taken me to some really interesting places, and it's impacted my work in ways that I hadn't expected because I was suddenly exposed to something different and new because often, and this is like you know the story of our careers, the path is actually often fairly interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think that like... For a lot of artists out there if it, who are listening, if you have someone who's happy to share and offers to share information with you about how they did something, that's great. But it is kind of like, in my opinion, you know, ask away, but have very low expectations because a lot of artists don't actually want to, um, you know, and Jen is like super generous because she she's written books, she teaches classes, she... Um, has podcast interviews. So what she's saying is she's not, and what I would say in the same exact way, is that we are not saying don't ask for help, don't go down the rabbit hole, but asking one individual person to give you information um, when you haven't actually done the research yourself is, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I think it's rude. It it is rude. And I, I also think that like, a lot of times 
in the beginning of my career, I thought, I mean, I was really interested in being nice, which is a whole white girl problem. But, um, you know, I would be like, oh, I have to respond to this person, even if I don't answer their question directly, because they're asking for something I don't actually want to share. Because otherwise, if I ignore them, then they're going to think I'm mean. And now I, I don't think that way anymore. But I also just don't have time. And so, and I think... I have had to really work on my own boundaries, not just with random requests from other artists who are just starting out who want advice about things. Unfortunately, I've also written books and <laughs> hosted classes that I can link to to help people out. But I also can you know, say I, as a matter of policy, I don't do one-on-one -on -one consulting with other artists. You know, There are plenty of artists who do, and you can pay those people for their time and energy and knowledge. So I think that is a is an important this is some so sort of side effect of of what happens when you reach a certain level of success right like people start expecting things from you or think that you'll deliver information to them and yep. and that's not always the case and i think it's not a reason to to be upset with someone because you have to understand that we have to be very protective of our time and our energy and our resources and our knowledge like and, and our you know our sources and all those things well, and I also, you know, like I, I understand the impulse to want to be nice. And I'm, I'm not necessarily a nice person, but I'm always a kind person. And I think that yes. there's a big difference between those two because nice, again, is it's, it's boundaryless. The person who is nice is not often standing up for themselves. They are trying to keep the peace. And that's not me, but I am kind in that I am mostly usually gracious. I'm interested in people. I'm interested in learning about people. I like talking to people, but I also have to be, you know, I also have to have boundaries. And I always think of kindness as being niceness, but with boundaries. So I'm not going to give and give and give until there's nothing left to give because I need to keep something for myself. And that's kind. And I don't get upset when other people are kind back to me. When I asked if somebody has time to help me with something or speak with me about something, and most often other artists will gladly do it because they know that I will reciprocate. And because I'm already doing the work too, so it's clear I'm not just taking. But when someone says, you know, I don't have time to do that or I'm not comfortable sharing that information, it's fine. I completely respect that. Yeah, you get it. And actually, uh, Brene Brown calls uh, says something like, clarity is kindness, which is a different way of saying what you're saying, which mm -hmm. is to be clear with someone, to be honest and clear about what you really want, right, about your boundaries, may be off-putting to other people. But it's actually the kindest thing you can do. Because if you are disingenuous and agree to something or are, quote, nice all you're doing is potentially building up resentments and doing something you don't actually want to do. Right. Right. And I always try to remember that when I am communicating in a very direct way that, you know, somebody might misconstrue as not nice is like, it's actually kind because I'm being clear about what I am and am not able to do. And I think that's, I don't know, it helps me work through those moments. And I think it helps 
the recipient too. I can't tell you how many times people have told me on Instagram that they appreciate my really clear boundaries and that at first it took them aback to see someone saying, no, I'm not going to answer that or the answer to your question is in the post or I'm not interested in sharing information. Like the most recent thing is, no, I'm not going to give you a house tour of my new place. But people have said, first they're taken aback by that, and then they actually really appreciate that I do it because it tells them that they can do it, specifically on social media, where social media gives this false sense of intimacy. You think you know someone. And I'm guilty of this too, right? Like I, We all are, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I get really curious about people, and I want to know, like, what aren't they saying? And But I keep that stuff to myself. I don't go out and ask them for that information. But that false sense of intimacy on social media makes people think that they're our friends, that we're all friends. And in reality, like it's, you know, I hate to make everything transaction, but it's still a transaction because there is no real community with strangers on the internet. It's it's giving and taking, scrolling past, but for the most part, it's very, very one-sided. And that's by design. Like that's the point of, you know, the screen. But also by design is this false sense of intimacy and these glimpses into people's lives that you might think are telling you the whole story and you know a lot about them because you've been following them for a few months. And I understand, I mean, I'm also 46, so I didn't grow up with this, but I understand why people are hesitant to post on social media or why the lines are also blurred for them. It's just a very strange place, and I take a step back from it pretty regularly and just ask myself, like, what am I doing on here? Why am I reading through the comments? Why am I posting? Why am I scrolling for half an hour before I go to bed? Like, what is the point of this? So I constantly have this conversation with myself about about being on social media and have a lot of really critical conversations with myself in my head, not out loud. Or with me. Or with you. Yeah, exactly. Via text. <laughs> or via, uh, or with other Lisa, Lisa Solomon and Sonia with the petty aunties, <laughs> which I, I highly recommend if you're a person online a lot to have your, your friends, to have your group chat so that you can kind of get into your feelings with your friends and then not put them on social media because people will make assumptions just like someone about my move was like, I find it very surprising that you're picking up and moving across country and leaving your friends and your family and no judgments, just it's surprising. And I was like, what kind of BS is that? <laughs> yeah. You don't exactly. know me. So yeah, maybe yeah. it's surprising to you because you don't know me, but why presume that you do? That's right. That's right. Yeah. The, the I'm shocked or I'm curious or I'm those comments are, mm-hmm. whew, I know people are trying to be kind, but. But they're not. It's passive aggressive. <sighs> it it's is. all projecting. And, you know, again, like I'm not a person who likes unsolicited advice. And because I have told people who've given me unsolicited advice that I did not ask them for their unsolicited advice. Guess what? No one gives me unsolicited advice anymore. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So I you're up that. telling people how I want to be treated. And again, like take it, taking it back to your original question about boundaries, yes, it's very much about being a black woman. That I already, I walk into situations kind of, you know, somewhat defensive because I don't know what the situation is going to be like as a black woman. And when I'm in primarily 
predominantly white situations because I've had some stuff said and done starting from when I was very, very young. Mm. And so I try to make it clear that I will not put up with that. And if that means that someone just doesn't say the offensive thing in front of me, it means that someone doesn't say the offensive thing in front of me, you know? Um, Or if they do say it and I call them out on it, done and done. But I don't want to be in the situation where that ish gets said to me, you know, right off the bat. I just want to make it clear to people that if they do say something like that, that I will push back. So it makes people a little bit more hesitant to say things. Not always, but often enough. Yeah, and I and I, I think also what you're modeling, again, modeling for all of us, even for white women, especially white women who claim to be anti-racist, is that, you know, if we're too nice, we might not actually stand up for the mm-hmm. thing that really matters, right, in, in service of being nice. And that's, you know, being nice is a, is a patriarchal, like, residue capitalism, right? It's right. like, it's all connected. And it's preserving the status quo. And what I think you model so well for the community, for other artists of color, for other, you know, artists, for white women, you know, is is speaking your truth and not, you know, apologizing and for being very direct. And I just, I don't know, it's kind of, it's amazing for me to watch. Mm, and, thank you. You know, it's so interesting. Like, we have been friends for, uh, oh gosh, almost a decade And just in the last few years is like when all of like discussion of social justice and and race has really come to the forefront in social media. And you and I both went from like not really talking about it at all, except amongst ourselves, to talking about it publicly. And I've learned so much from watching how you handle all of the situations that you've been in and how eloquently you write about your life. So if you don't already follow Jen on social media, you know all of her boundaries now. (laughs) So she's at Jen Hewitt. It's all one word on Instagram. And you'll be delighted by her work, but also her storytelling and her voice. I had Jen as a special guest, actually, in my creative entrepreneurship class that I teach for grad students at PNCA, Pacific Northwest College of Art. And I had her talk to my class specifically about storytelling and how important storytelling is in helping people understand your work and helping people understand, you know, where you're coming from. And it is kind of an art form in and of itself. And Jen is a great storyteller. Jen, I have two final questions for you. They're really dorky and, you know, not shouldn't be very hard. What? Okay. Two, first question. What is your least favorite slash most difficult part of being a working artist? Oh, gosh. Um, It will sound funny coming from someone who used to do HR, but (laughs) all the compliance paperwork and the accounting and the bookkeeping, I hate doing that stuff. This year I got a bookkeeper. Hi, Crystal. She's fantastic. Thank you, Crystal. Oh, my gosh. Save Jen's sanity. (laughs) I hate that stuff. I hate it, hate it, hate it. As do I. I got rid of that a few years ago, and uh, it's the best thing I ever did. Okay. On the opposite end of the spectrum, what is your favorite part of being a working artist? Oh, I get to create the things that I want to see. Mm. 
it's taken a long time to get to the point where I can actually make the thing that I see in my head, but it's super gratifying to have an idea and to see it through to whatever its logical or maybe not so logical end is. Mm. Yeah, it's so gratifying. It's like the best, most special feeling in the world. I can't, yeah. Ugh. Well, and I I'm think it's why artists are so threatening to authoritarian regimes, right? Mm. It's because artists dare to imagine a different world and are able to put that out there in a way that is visual and accessible to everybody. And so if you're able to create the thing that you want to exist in the world as an artist, it's an example for everyone else that they too can create the thing that they want to see in the world. And hopefully most of those things are good, but I do think that that's, that's the special gift of art and artists in this world. Yes. Art transforms lives. Oh, it's so true. Jen, thank you so much for joining me today. And I will link to your website, your anything, you know, your books, um, your Instagram in my show notes. So people can go, if they're not already familiar with you, they can go check out your work and all of your, your magic. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks. For and oh, by me. the way, I just interrupted you, but I wanted to say this won't be the last time. <laughs> so yeah, next time we'll have to talk about our favorite celebrity dogs. Yeah, I have a list going. So I've got, I've got my list of celebrity dogs going. Yeah, I'm just like super stoked to have this conversation. All right. Um, thanks again, Jen. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.